0: I don't know what your perception of the contemporary world is, but I see an awful lot of people who are very stressed. I see a lot of people who are often very irritable. And I'm sure at times I'm one or both of those things. I see people who are constantly interrupted. One minute your cell phone's ringing, the next minute the instant messages are coming, the next minute... Something else is happening. We live in a very stressed and very interrupted world. If you're a business person, you know how challenging your world is now. Not only a world of increasing interruptions and increasing activity, increasing demands, increasing competition, there are all kinds of pressures. One of those is no matter what you do, you're being evaluated If you're an attorney or a physician or a teacher or a business person or even a church, you're constantly being evaluated and online you can go find evaluations of people and make judgments as to whether you want to go to that dentist or that doctor or to go to that school or whatever it is or even to that church based on the evaluations of other people. Since the church... Isn't immune to the normal pressures of life, and people like me who are preachers and work in the church are not immune either. There is a temptation that we face that our mission as leaders in the church is really just to make people happy. That if we make enough people happy, then maybe we'll get good reviews. And people will read about us online and they'll say, oh, Christ Church is well regarded. Let's, let's go there. I'm overstating this by a good bit, but for a reason. Because our goal here is not to just make people happy. If you're happy as a result of your experience at Christ Church of Oakbrook, that's wonderful. We are not here, obviously, to make you unhappy. However... The goal of ministry together, the goal of ministry in the life of Christ together, is not about just making ourselves happy or comfortable or achieving all that we want to achieve in life. The goal of the church is to make disciples. That's our goal. The tough work of perseverance through the challenges and difficulties of life as we grow ever more to become more like Christ. And then do his work in the world. That's the work of the church, is equipping people to do that. Today's passage is about this cost of commitment. It's about being the kind of people who are committed to the task to which God has called us. And it's about being a church that develops and multiplies ever more leaders for being the hands and feet of Jesus in this difficult, challenging, beloved world that God created. There's an ongoing theological debate, at least in the evangelical branch of the Christian faith. And this ongoing debate has to do with, did Jesus really come for people to make decisions for him, to indicate that they believe, or did Jesus come To not only help them to believe in him, but did he call them to be disciples, to follow him? Clearly the evidence of the gospels, and certainly the evidence of this text, is that Jesus called people to follow him wholeheartedly as fully devoted disciples. To be again his hands and feet to this world to, in a sense, replace him by the power of the Holy Spirit after he was gone to advance the mission of his teaching and to advance the mission of God in this world. Luke 9.51, as I've already mentioned, is this important watershed text. In Luke 9.51, we see again these words, as the time approached for him to be taken up into heaven... Jesus resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem. He resolutely, he resolutely set out for Jerusalem. This is a watershed moment because, again, what's happened so far is that Jesus has been offering this amazing teachings to which people were very responsive No itinerant rabbi had quite talked like this man was talking. No one seemed to encapsulate what it means to be a follower of God quite like this man, Jesus of Nazareth. So people were charmed and thrilled and, and stirred by his beautiful teachings. And no doubt he was good at delivering it. So they've been hearing these great teachings and then in addition, they have been seeing these remarkable miracles take place. Even miracles over nature and the casting out of demons and the healing of people with lifelong medical conditions and the raising to life of a 12-year-old girl who had literally died and was resurrected from the dead. These are the kinds of miracles that were stirring people and giving them great hope. And if, if Jesus had been in a popularity contest by chapter 9 of Luke, he would have been winning. But now, resolutely, the text tells us, Jesus is heading toward a different task. He's doing the next right thing. He's doing what he was born to do, which was to go to Jerusalem and die. And along the way, the struggle would be intense. He would face incredible pressures. This would be a very difficult challenge. At some point in life, most all of us have to resolutely face something. We have to set our face to doing a task that we wish we didn't have to do. Maybe for you it's been a a surgery that you were strongly advised to have by a surgeon who told you, you really need to do this, but I need to tell you there are significant risks. And then you sign all of those waivers, and just in reading the waivers, you discover it's probably better just not to read them. (laughs) But there are all these things they say could happen to you if you have this surgery, and you have to make a decision. I need this, and I need to set my face resolutely to doing it. Maybe it's something very different. Maybe it's a struggle with a child. Maybe there's a decision to be made about something that needs to be done there that's very, very difficult to do. Maybe it's a move that you face or a job change or just some major relationship issue in life where some, some decision is looming and you have to set your face to making it. Jesus was born for this journey he's now embarking on, but it was still very, very painful. It was what he was born to do, but it didn't make it any easier. To become a victim instead of a beloved teacher, to be placed before a kangaroo court, to be beaten, to be crucified. He's telling his disciples, this is a new day that's coming here, and he's demonstrating it in this text that to follow me so far has been thrilling, but soon it's going to be very costly. Here's really the whole point of the morning message. Being a disciple is a risky business. It is a risky business to be a disciple. To follow Jesus not just in the beautiful teachings and not just in the comfort of his presence and not just in the glowing memories we have of all the wonderful things that he's done and we celebrate together as a church. The text is telling us now, and Jesus is reminding the disciples, this is a risky business. There is tremendous reward. The rewards are high, unspeakably high, but the risks are also great. So as the text tells us, the disciples have gone into a Samaritan village. The Samaritans, in this case, were not a a welcome welcoming group it's interesting almost all the other times in the Gospels the Samaritans get good press this is not the case for the Samaritans here Jesus even sent in the disciples as an advance team to go about the village and to tell them that Jesus is coming to prepare the way you can imagine the disciples coming in and saying hey we represent Jesus of Nazareth he's coming You've probably heard about all the wonderful things that he's done. You've heard of the miracle stories, and perhaps some of you have heard his teachings. This is a wonderful man, and he's coming to your village, so won't that be exciting? And yet the Samaritan village rejected Jesus and said, we don't want anything to do with him. This is new stuff for the disciples. Jesus fully expected it. For the disciples, though, this was something entirely new and something entirely unwelcome. This was painful for them. This road to Jerusalem has already gotten tough. It happens at the very instant that Jesus sets his face to go there. Now the traveling is difficult. James and John have an impulsive and very inappropriate reaction. To paraphrase it, they say, Jesus, let's call down fire from heaven and let's nuke them. There's a mature disciple's response to people who didn't want to hear them. Jesus, I imagine, pointedly, but also probably patiently, said to the disciples, no, we don't nuke people. We don't write negative views about their village and post them online. (laughs) We don't do any of that. What we do when we encounter resistance is we just go on to the next village and we just make a change. We're not here to fix people who don't want to be fixed. We just move on. And then the text tells us about three encounters with what I'll call for want of a better term, the wannabe disciples. The first wannabe disciple appears in verse 57. He approaches Jesus and he says, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Wherever it is you're going, I'll be there with you. Jesus, in hearing about the first wannabe disciple who said, I will follow you wherever you go, Jesus reminded him that his journey is a tough one. And he says, by the way, if you follow me, you will be homeless. Foxes have nests in which they can dwell. Even birds have little nests up in the trees or wherever they are. They can go there and be comforted. If you follow me, you will have no place to lay your head at night. Do you want to be a part of that? And that wannabe disciple didn't want that. A second man is called by Jesus. Jesus spies him somehow in the crowd. And he says, you, follow me. And the man feigned some real strong enthusiasm, no doubt, at the beginning. Oh, I want to follow you. I really do. But first, let me go bury my father. And Jesus said that that wouldn't work. Unless that sounds too cruel, in the ancient world, a season of grief could last as long as six months. It's even possible that it began before the man had even passed away. Jesus said, time is running short here. If you want to be my follower, you will have to just be my follower and you will have to go. And so that man found the calling too difficult and didn't follow. A third man said that he would like to follow Jesus, but he first needed to say goodbye to his family. And again, Jesus said, And this is the hard part. This is the part where Jesus is not trying to rise up the ranks of popularity. This is where Jesus is being very brutally honest. If you're going to follow me, the road is difficult. If you can't do it now, it's not going to get any easier. Come, follow me. The point of all of this is that the cost of discipleship is high. Duty and privilege go together as the followers of Christ. We often from the pulpit and in our teachings with one another in the church talk about all of the great and wondrous benefits of being a Christian. And they are many. They are numerous. They are innumerable. Being a Christian has profound benefits. Profound benefits of peace of mind and joy and contentment. All of that is true but if there are these wonderful, wonderful benefits, there are also these profound responsibilities and challenging duties that are a part of what it means to be a Christian. The cost of discipleship is high. Duty and privilege go together. As we have and will continue an ever more call people to various ministries within Christ Church or to the world around us, as God so leads you, to be in ministry and service, to be the hands and feet of Jesus for the world, as we call people, we have an obligation to tell you, first of all, this can be challenging. You could face rejection. And it's only fair of us to say that up front and to make that clear Being a Christian and proclaiming the Christian faith sometimes has moments of rejection. That's just the way it is. And we owe that to you to tell you that. We also owe you something else. We owe you as a church the training and the equipping necessary to do that ministry effectively, whatever that ministry is. We owe it to you not to send untrained people into ministry. And Jesus understood that principle. It's why he's getting the disciples ready for the work and the challenge of what they would be called to. I'm a fan for some reason of military history. And I read it all the time. And I think about an illustration of this to to simply say we won't work this way from the Russian army in World War I which amazingly was 100 years ago now. In the World War I Russian army, they were ill-equipped. They had very few uh, weapons. They had very few resources. They had very little training. And they were up against the German army, which was very well-equipped and very well-trained and very effective. The Russian Tsar's army answer to this problem was, we have more people than they do, more men, more soldiers, We'll just send untrained people into the line in great waves. They'll get shot by the Germans. The Germans will begin eventually to run out of ammunition and become tired by shooting. And then we'll send some better trained troops to finish off the Germans. It's an absurd example that really happened. I just want to say, that's no way to do ministry. We are going to send troops, if you will, who are equipped for the task. I want to share a story which initially, when you hear, you'll think, What does this have to do with the passage? But I think I can make my case. It's a basketball story, and it's probably no surprise to you that I might have played basketball. (laughs) By the time I was 12 years old, I was six feet tall, and because I had grown up on a horse ranch, my real goal in life was to be a jockey. I continually told my parents that when I'd watch a horse race, I want to I be a jockey. At about the age of 12, they pulled me aside and said, it's probably not your sport. So I went into basketball and had an encounter with basketball in my freshman year of college that um, was very informative to me. I was a really good high school player, and I was a really mediocre college player, really mediocre. Maybe sub-mediocre, but just just humor me here. And of course, now I'm a, I'm a legend in my own mind, so I'm happy to tell you ever more stories about basketball exploits. But I was playing for a team and a, a college team. We were uh, not a very good team, really. And as the season went along at instead of getting better, we actually wound up getting worse. And I was injured early in the season, so I had to take about a month off. The doctor and trainer said, you can't play for a month, you're sidelined for a while. Meanwhile, we had other problems on the team. We had a couple of guys who flunked out at the first semester. We had another couple of guys get injured. Finally, we're down to, to 10 people on a basketball team when you need a few more than that. And we were taking our first road trip right after the Christmas break, and I was cleared to play. But I was pretty nervous about it, really. I was nervous about getting injured again. I was out of shape. And I'm thinking, well, you know, I'm going to go on the road trip. Whether I play or not, I don't know. So we took 10 people on this road trip. We get to Tempe, Arizona, where we were playing at Arizona State. And two of our guys, unfortunately, the night we got there before the game the next night, two of our guys were arrested for various misconduct. (laughs) And, um, And we're down to eight players for the next night. So I'm calculating the odds here. I don't know that I'm really ready to play, but there are only eight players. Bill, you really ought to kind of get mentally ready to go out there. So we start our five starters, who were clearly our five best guys. There was me, and there were two other guys who were the only two guys that I was probably really better than. So I'm thinking, I sure hope nobody gets in foul trouble or gets injured, because I sure can't play a whole game. So the game goes along. We are doing surprisingly well. The first five guys are actually getting exhausted from playing constantly, And in the second half, fairly early into the second half, one of those five guys fouls out. So I'm at the end of the bench, and I'm trying to decide in my head. I'm already trying to decide. Are you ready to play? Coach walks down the bench. You've got about a minute or so when someone fouls out to figure out, if you're the coach, what you're going to do. He comes down to me. I stand up. He looks at me, and he says, Clark, are you ready to play? Then he said it again, Clark, are you ready to play? I think he could tell maybe by my face (laughs) that I wasn't so sure. And then he says, are you? Yeah, coach, I'm ready to play. And he looks right at me and he says, nah. He walks down the bench and grabs one of the other guys. I don't blame the coach one bit For that response. I said I was ready to play, but I didn't look ready to play. Here's the really bizarre thing about that story. The guy who went in instead of me had the game of his life. He actually won the game on a last-second shot. So this motley crew of eight players is celebrating this win over a reasonably good program. And everybody's really happy. But I'm not. Not really. I'm glad we won, but on the risk reward scale, I really felt I had blown it. Could have been me that made that last second shot. It could have been me dancing with glee on the court instead of just sort of saying, "Yeah, this is great. This is great." Could have been me who took the risk to have experienced the victory could have been me. In a sense, in an odd sense, our faith is a bit like that. And following Jesus is a little bit like that. If you you want to experience all that the faith of Christ has to offer for us, risk is implied and the risk is worth it. If you want to experience the fullness and the wholeness and the joy of being a Christian, then it's taking those venture forth steps of faith and activity that have moved you outside your comfort zone and potentially even put you at some risk for the sake of accomplishing something really good on behalf of God. If you just play it safe if you just don't take the steps of discipleship, if you don't resolutely say, I am 100% on board, you are going to miss this incredible adventure that God has for his people. And so I would ask you, would you be willing to pray that God would show to you what is the next step, and it may be a small step, what's the next step of adventure in the Christian life? And I can tell you, if you accept the assignment, if you take that step, you will feel really, really good about it. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you. Thank you for your goodness and grace to us. Thank you for how you call us. And Lord, thank you that you call us and hang in there with us, not just through the the easy stages of what it means to be a Christian, not just through the Christmases and the Easter's and the joyful moments, but through the difficult moments too. Lord, be with us and give us the courage to take the next step of faith. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.